Hey, it's Jordan. I'm here with Regina Williams Preston, a council member in South Bend, Indiana, who's running for mayor, uh, where current presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg is uh, currently the mayor. Uh, we'll get into him in a little bit, but I wanted to start with you. So uh, South Bend, uh, pretty much right, right in that Rust Belt. Uh, I've been there before, and you've lived there your whole life. Uh, describe to me kind of what's been happening in the Rust Belt, uh, specifically South Bend, uh, I'd say over the last 10 years, because uh, when I go there, some areas kind of look like an episode of The Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah, that that would be a pretty accurate description. So um, I left uh, when I graduated from high school and went off to college, did that whole live all over the country thing. And uh, when I moved back in, in 2000, um, the neighborhood where I grew up, I, I bought a home right around the corner from my mom, right next door to where my dad lived. Um, and it was just a completely different place. Um, just like many cities in this area, um, you know, industry left neighborhoods in their natural kind of life cycle. Um, these are neighborhoods that are a bit out from, you know, it's a small town, so nothing's very far, but it's not one of the neighborhoods closest to downtown. Um, of course, at that time, our, down, our time, our downtown had really died off. Um, everything had gone towards Notre Dame and towards kind of a, uh, the neighboring city, uh, Mishawaka. And um, so the homes were in disrepair, quite a lot of blight. Um, when I married and moved just a few more blocks down the street with my husband, uh, the, the block we lived on had 12 houses and six of them were vacant and abandoned. Um, the one right next to us had, uh, you know, been on fire. It was demolished. Then the house next to that, um, again, many of these homes were just basically every few years. There was a fire. There were people in there. There were animals and just completely falling apart for about the last 15 years. Um, no action, no activity, just complete decay and decline. And so um, it was about 2011 when uh, my husband decided to um, purchase the house right next to us and the house down the block off of tax sale in order to, and then a couple of other neighbors had talked about getting a couple of the other houses just to kind of shore up our, our block, our neighborhood. Um, right now is pretty much, at this time, it was pretty much block by block. You know, here's a good block, here's a rough block. And um, the, the space where my mom lived was still really pretty much in good shape. Um, everyone was, um, they're seniors, but they maintain their home. They get the help that they need. Um, but the block where we lived was really kind of falling apart. Yeah. It's interesting to me because I see the media kind of painting, uh, Pete Buttigieg. I mean, it's, it's kind of like foaming, <laughs> drooling a little bit. And they're like, oh, you know, a small town mayor, uh, he has the pulse, but they're not actually like discussing what he's done as mayor or, I mean, I'm looking at it, a quick Google search, like South Bend is number 40 uh, on the list of uh, worst places to live in the United States. It's got a 25% poverty rate. Obviously, this is not only because of him, but I mean, evictions are three times the national limit, uh, the national average. Yeah, homelessness is a big problem. So um, what exactly, uh, what, what exactly is, you know, the credentials or the success story that uh, Mayor Pete has because it doesn't seem that way to me well i think what people are really excited about is how beautiful downtown is now 
um, how we have a lot of new businesses, new, I mean, it's it's just amazing the, 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 the buildings that are being constructed. And of course you might've heard about smart streets where now we have lots of beautiful roundabouts and greenery and bike lanes um, all downtown and starting to creep up some of the main corridors um, connecting downtown to say like, um, well, to the university, but also to um, the airport. And so there's a feeling that things are changing. There's a lot of excitement um, in the media. And like when you look around downtown, you're seeing things becoming beautiful. You're seeing activity downtown. Um, and a lot of it has been geared towards and and not, you know, uh, it hasn't been a secret that that really the changes that's been happening has been targeting the young professional crowd. So primarily saying, OK, well, we have students coming in from all over the world. We want them to make South Bend their home. And so it's been about really making a pretty space, a beautiful space that is geared primarily towards bringing in new people. And the investment that we've seen, even how we've been using our tax dollars, has been going to exactly that. I mean, building luxury apartments downtown, studio apartments that start at around twelve to $1,500 a month. And people are asking the question, well, who can afford that? You know, there's certainly no one in South Bend. And the answer has generally been, oh yeah, but you know, for people who are coming in from New York or LA or these big cities, you know, that's nothing. That's, that's you know, an inexpensive apartment. Um, so the question, the big question is, uh, what about us? You know, the people who live in South Bend, uh, one of the statistics I've been talking about and a lot of local activists we've been pushing for the last five years is 54% of the people in South Bend, the working people of South Bend live paycheck to paycheck. Basically based on that's the Alice report that the United Way puts out for cities all over the country. And when you have half of the people who are working hard every day, uh, just not being able to make ends meet, you know, there's a problem. And so the excitement that you're hearing about, um, is really primarily about downtown and it's great prosperity and it's great growth but that growth and prosperity has really only touched a very small segment of our community but this goes to a broader point um you know you look at people like kamala harris cory booker um joe biden Beto o'rourke as councilmen as senators as congress people they take a whole lot of money from real estate developers uh, special interests but uh mayor pete uh, you know, obviously on an executive level, he's doing what Cleveland has done, Portland has done, uh, Seattle has done, San Francisco has done, Chicago, L.A. I mean, I could go on and on, which is this this buzzword economic development, but to bring in uh, basically people not native to, to those communities to basically make a beautiful 10 to 15 block radius and let the rest rot. Do you feel like um, not just the mayor, but in general, uh, efforts by politicians like this are essentially efforts to just drive out the poor people and make make it a, a, a nice, yuppie, younger area. Well, um, you know, gentrification is real. Um, part of when I said I moved, out, you know, I left town, went to college. I actually lived in San Francisco, Oakland, that Bay Area for um, some a number of years before it looks like it does today. And so um, even then I saw, you know, um, the, the banks of the, of the Bay 
you know, with all the industrial parks, it was really run down at that time. But but I was looking at that and saying, wow, like this is like the most beautiful place to live. You have a beautiful skyline of, of the city every night. It's warm, all of those things. And sure enough, everybody saw that, too. So I had a little window into what gentrification looks like just before it happens. So when I moved back, um, the area in which I live, like I said, it was really had fallen into blight and decay. There was lots of violence, lots of shootings, things I had never experienced growing up, but it was certainly something that was happening on a pretty much daily basis now. And yet they started, uh, they, they transformed the local elementary that like I could literally see from my house and the high school, they actually closed it in the area and made it a intermediate academy. So now all of a sudden we had the intermediate academy and the elementary academy, the premier schools right in the middle of the hood. And that's when I knew it's like, okay, wait, this isn't gonna be the hood for long. And sure enough, that's kind of when things things kind of ramped up with the thousand houses. Now what I what I, I do believe, I don't what I don't I don't believe that the Buddha Judge administration had this nefarious plot to intentionally drive out poor people and people of color. But what's really important to know is that there's a difference between, you know, what do you want to focus on, the in, in, the intention or the impact? You know, what's important is the impact. It doesn't matter if that's not what we meant to do. What's actually happening is that poor people and people of color are losing assets through this traditional method of economic development. And that's what we've been talking about a lot here. A lot of the conversation has been, well, you know, we need investment in these outer neighborhoods before these homes continue to deteriorate. We already tore down so many homes because of the vacant and abandoned problem. Well, if we don't do something, we're just going to be creating more vacant homes because the homes are deteriorating fast. And, you know, what we're met with, well, you know, the research says and traditional models say, and this is what happened in Baltimore. And well, you know, this is how it's always done. And so what my refrain is, well, you know what they say, if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always gotten. And what we've gotten and what cities all over the country have gotten with traditional methods of economic development is gentrification and displacement of poor people and people of color. And so I think the success story here that's not being told in the national media is really about this community. It's really about the folks who organized, who said, not in our town, who said, we are going to take back our communities and our neighborhoods and make sure that the administration knows that we are going to have resident driven development. And so really it's been a struggle for the last three and a half years. Um, well, even before then, because that's just the time I've been on the council, but um, really it's been a struggle for the community to organize and, and really communicate with the administration, particularly during that time where we had the thousand houses and thousand days. So, that program, you know, I hear people talking about, oh, wow, this is great. Can you, you, know, can you, can you explain that program? Okay, so, well, um, one of the things, this is how I heard, I've heard, you know, Pete talk about it, is like when he ran for mayor the first time, um, he was out knocking on doors, talking to people. And one of the biggest concerns were the vacant and abandoned homes. And so he really wanted to address that um, as a part of his administration. So um, his, his plan was, well, um, let's identify a thousand vacant and abandoned homes and demolish them all. And uh, really there was, and there was nothing different about his plan is nothing innovative, like different than other places. We're using the same tools. The only thing difference was we're going to do it in a very short amount of time. And uh, I think one of the problems with that 
in retrospect. And maybe if we'd have thought about it, we could we could see that whenever we do something in a short amount of time, we have a goal, we ramp it up. A lot of times there are mistakes made. You know, there are things that are overlooked or corners cut that ultimately end up hurting people. And so that's, I think, what was one of the failings of the thousand houses in a thousand days, um, not really understanding the long term impact or even the short term impact or the domino effect of, you know, their goal to address a thousand homes. And, well, and even that language changed. Yes. My, my understanding also is a lot of these homes were vacant, owned by poor minority uh, residents, but who just didn't have the money to fix it up. Or, you know, uh, some of my reading was the homes were demolished when these were heirlooms passed down. But, you know, if you're poor, you don't have a ton of money to fix up a house. Exactly. And and at the time that it was happening, the, the propaganda was, oh, these are out of town landlords. These homes, uh, we're not getting any tax dollars from them. People just buy them on a tax sale and they're holding on to them. These are people in Israel and Russia who own these homes. And that was the prevailing um, understanding. But in real life, living in the neighborhoods, knowing the people that were experiencing this, I knew and the people, my neighbors knew that, wait a minute, there might that might be true to some level, but there's a whole lot of people here that's getting caught up in that desire to rid the city of absentee landlords. And what we found actually um, uh, afterwards, as we kind of was able to go back and do some um, pull some data, was that 75 just just under 75 percent of the homes that were demolished were actually owned by people who lived in Saint Joe County. So it, we don't know exactly, you know, the spaces and who they were. We haven't dug that deeply into the data yet. But what we're seeing is that again, we kind of have our eye on a goal. And we kind of push forward no matter what. When we run into an obstacle, we just kind of bulldoze right over it, no pun intended, and 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 keep going. And then, like I, what I found was once the thousand houses were addressed, and that was really one of the first victories. The housing advocates we said, why are we knocking all these homes down? Some of them can be saved for affordable housing. And so um, somewhere into that, um, you know, they decided, well, okay will address, you know, these homes, a thousand homes. So we didn't, it did end up, I think out of the 1200 that ended up being addressed, I think it was somewhere around four or 500 that were actually rehabbed rather than just demolished. So that was a small victory there. Um, but still overall, what we still need to do, we've done some kind of kind of reflection to understand the impact of what happened. Um, but I still hear stories constantly. I mean, just living in the neighborhood of people saying exactly what you said. Oh yeah, you know, that was my mom, my my grandma's house, you know, our family home, but you know, my grandma died and we really couldn't fix it up. We didn't have the money to do that. So, you know, we uh, just let it go. Well, it, and, go, it goes to the point, um, you know, he's being painted as a progressive. Uh, I've read into his policies, I mean, on the national scale, he's not really pushing policy as much as like, hey, you know, I'm from the Midwest and I'm young and, you know, it's more like a, a brand and a, and a narrative and policies come later. That's basically what he's pushing. But it's not a progressive thing to basically cater to developers, big business, um, because it really comes down to your worldview, right? If you grew up in an upper middle class area, which I think he did, you go to Harvard, more power to you. But your idea of economic success might be 
exactly what's happening, which is beautifying downtown South Bend. But how does that help the people in your community and working people, black and white? Uh, so what are some of the things, uh, do, A, do you agree with that? And B, uh, what are some of the things you would do uh, as mayor of South Bend? Right. Well, um, do I agree with everything? I'm not sure that he grew up in necessarily an upper middle class neighborhood. He actually grew up somewhat in the same neighborhood I grew up in, okay. just kind of in a generation. Um, and true, it had probably been more on the decline when he was coming up than when I was even here. Um, but even so, I mean, of course, he his parents were professors at Notre Dame. You know, there's a there's a different path right. that he may have taken. But, you know, again, even um, Pete specifically aside, I think what what because what I what I saw for the last uh, the second part of his administration um, was after again, after the thousand houses goal had been met um, as the activists, local activists continue to press the administration is I think I saw um, a more of a willingness to listen and uh, uh, beginning to understand the value of connecting with residents um, in a way that can really um, address issues in a different way, in a new way that can be more neighborhood friendly and more inclusive. And so, but that's something that's kind of just kind of gotten going and I'm excited to see that change. Hey, I'm, I'm happy to give credit where credit is due. Um, I think there still needs to be some reckoning in terms of, okay, what happened and what happened specifically to, I mean, this is a small community, you know, in the end. And so when people are disp dispossessed of, of homes, we all know that your house is where you build your wealth. And so um, different policies and what we've already started to do is to say, you know what, we need to look more carefully at the policies and and the the resources that we have to make better decisions that are more in line with the needs of the people. So uh, a really good example, and this is where we're going into what I will be continuing to do. I've done some of this as much as I can as a council member, um, and we'll be able to focus more on this kind of real kind of uh, evaluation of policy for equal benefit to everyone. Um, one of the very first things when we were organizing around the housing, you know, we'd go around, we're, we're building a neighborhood association, knocking on doors, talking to people. And what we'd hear is like, oh, yeah, you know, a lot of rooftops, you know, are really in decline. Something's wrong with your roof. You know, did you know that the city has some resources that you can apply for to get grants? And people would say over and over again, yeah, I applied for that, but you know, I don't, I make $123 too much. Um, and so what we were discovering was that, you know, those federal dollars, and there's like two and a half million dollars worth of federal money, the CDBG block grants um, that come into our community every year for neighborhood development, those dollars um, have regulations. You know, you have to be living below the poverty line to access the home repair dollars. So this is where we kind of discovered a policy gap. And this is, this is my language now, I'm on the council, of course, i didn't talk about it like that then, but the fact that, you know, well, how many people really in our community who live below the poverty line are actually owning their own home at this point? Um, but the people who do own their home, actually, they're, they may be on a fixed income, but they still make over the poverty limit. Uh, so that the people that we're really trying to help actually can't access those dollars because of the federal regulations on those. So, well, that sounds like a simple remedy. You know, what we did was be able to work with the administration to actually add city dollars to that. So now we have two pockets of money and there's no more income limits. And so we had to connect with people to let them understand, OK, you can reapply now and you'll be able to um, 
to be eligible to, for those dollars. So we were able to, by reviewing our policy carefully, understanding the real lived experience of people in the neighborhoods, we could better, we could give them greater access to the resources by fine tuning those eligibility requirements to meet the actual need that's out there. So that's just one um, way we were able to actually get now, and this is what I'm saying, it takes all of us, you know, and, and now the, the uh, Buttigieg administration, they, you know, have been listening. Uh, we had to fight tooth and nail for certain things. Like we wanted to do a community survey because we're saying, okay, well, look, we knocked down all these houses. We've got these vacant lots and we want to do infill. But what about the houses around them? You know, we brought our ideas to the community and packed the house down to the county city building. And what we heard loud and clear was, okay, new affordable homes, nice. But I own my home and my home's in bad shape. I need help. And so we we made a shift. We said, well, you know what? New affordable home housing is not the priority of the people. What's the priority of the people is home repair. And so that's where we went first, which made a lot of sense. Again, as we are downtown, often in this ivory tower, we are making assumptions about what's needed out there. And so it's really important. What I've learned in three and a half years on the council is you can't make an effective policy without engaging with the people who your decisions are going to impact the most because they know their situation. They can help us understand the domino effect of whatever decision that might be so we can craft better interventions that's going to be more effective to actually serve the people. So that was one of the big, big things is, is getting, and this is what I was saying, is that you have to give credit. The administration finally kind of turned its attention and began listening. Um, we did have to kind of... <laughs> You know, we had lots of meetings, like literally five hour meetings into the night kind of uh, begging and, and, you know, for just little bitty bits of dollars to say, just give us a chance. Give us a chance. We'll show you. So we did the community survey. We had these vacant lots. So, for example, again, this is where I'll be going with my administration, having that on the ground understanding of what's happening in the neighborhoods. So we have this vacant lot. We say we really want to put a new home there affordable construction so we can you know different people can get in there we can have diverse inclusive neighborhoods but the homes around them are in disrepair so what with the community survey survey what we were able to do is knock on the home next door and say oh well it's mrs smith and she's 80 years old and she owns her home and she plans to live there for the rest of her life well mrs smith did you know that habitat for humanity has this great program called aging in place and this program will come in and they will give you a new water heater, furnace, fix your house up, top to bottom, new roof, everything you need, absolutely free, as long as you stay in that home. And so that's a fantastic fix because now the home that we know needed repair, it didn't cost the city $1. All it costs is for us to have the, the, the connection to leverage our relationships with neighborhood associations to get people out there and get them connected with one another and get them connected to resources. Because now, just because Ms. Smith knows there's uh, a program out there, it doesn't necessarily mean she has the capacity or the ability to actually fill out that application, right? So by organizing, we're, we're going to, my administration will use neighborhood associations as a central organizing principle to connect with real people on the ground. And those neighborhood association folks can actually work with Mrs. Smith to make sure she gets that application in and follow up with her all the way. So, because also what I've found is that we often make a lot of policy but there's no follow through. Yeah. There's no real like kind of check and balance. And I think that that's where my experience as a teacher really kind of plays into this because I'm always wondering, 
you know, when I see a problem with a student, you know, it's about really understanding the problem deeply, crafting an intervention, and then going back to make sure that intervention made the difference that we had intended. And if not, making some changes is needed. And so that's what I've brought so far to my role as a council is to continue to go back and make sure that we're actually being effective on the ground because it doesn't matter what's on the books downtown. What really matters is the impact in the neighborhoods and on real people. What a concept, community-based policymaking. Unbelievable. Wow. Uh, I, 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 li- I really like uh, what you're describing. Uh, tell my audience what's the, what's the nuts and bolts. When's the election? Should be noted, you're, he's not running again. Uh, so wh- what is, when's the election? How could people find out more about you? Okay, well, um, we'll be voting. Early voting actually starts right now. And uh, we'll, the final election day is May 7th. And so everybody needs to make sure they get out, they organize people, get out, vote early, make it happen. And um, you can reach me and get more information about my platform at rwp4mayor.com. Great. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Uh, Regina Williams Preston, uh, council member and uh, potential mayor. So uh, we'll follow up uh, closer to the election date. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.